Hang tight. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview inspiring, fascinating women who are navigating aging with class and sass. I'm your host, Nicole Christina. Hey everyone, I am so grateful for all of the downloads, and I'd love a rating on iTunes and a comment. And please subscribe. It helps the show's rating so other people can find it and learn how to age well. And if you are loving the podcast, why not check out the companion online course, Zestful Aging, Simple and Sustainable Habits for Health and Longevity. You can access it through my website, NicoleChristina.com forward slash Zestful Aging. It's based on the Harvard Study of Adult Development, and I'm really proud of how it's turned out. Well, I've got my coffee in my hand and my trusty dog Sparky beside me, so let's begin. Sandy Weiner, my guest today, is the founder of Last First Date, and she helps women achieve healthy toe-curling epic love in the second half of life. She's an internationally known TEDx speaker, a dating coach, a motivational speaker, and a retreat leader. And Sandy specializes in helping women develop unwavering core confidence. I love that. Communicate Mm. effectively and set clear boundaries in relationships. She believes that a woman of value attracts her best partner. Sandy's contributed to many large publications, including HuffPost, Better After 50, Mind Body Green, Psychology Today, and others. And she's the host of First Last Date Radio, which is an acclaimed show about attracting and sustaining healthy relationships in midlife. Welcome, Sandy. Thank you. So good to be here. Thanks. You're a busy woman. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just one little correction is that my show is Last First Date Radio. And I think you said First Last Date or something like which a lot of people get that wrong. Um, But that's okay. We really want to be on our last first date. And Mm. especially when we're older. And um, a lot of people think that's not even possible. So uh, there's, the show really isn't just about dating, and you're going to be a guest. So we're, we're, we talk about anything that has to do with having a healthy ra- relationship in midlife. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, how, how important that is. And there's so many aspects of that, having healthy relationships um, in midlife, do you want to talk about some of the pieces that go into or the elements of having healthy relationships? That's a big question. <laughs> it's a big question. I'll give you the uh, the cliff notes. Having a healthy relationship starts with you, with us. And I think that when we're older, we have had enough life experience to know what we don't want. And if we're smart and healthy, then we can take a look at the patterns we've created. 
So a lot of people have argued with me about this and said, well, you know, if I ended up in an abusive relationship, it's not my fault. And it was the abuser. And I know you're a therapist, so I'm pretty sure you're going to agree with me on this, that it's not about blaming somebody for being in an abusive relationship. It's about looking within to ask yourself, what did I do to create this relationship? And why did I stay? And I mean, there's so many reasons why we attract in this type of relationship. And most of them have to do with your childhood home and the experiences you had there and your self-worth, which is an outcome of your home experience and your experiences throughout your life in relationship. So I think one of the most beautiful things that we can do as we age is to change that experience and to change our patterns and to say, okay, I want to have healthy relationships from now on. So I need to be able to heal within myself and then to recognize red flags really quickly so I don't waste time in the wrong relationships. And I need to learn to speak up clearly and um, know what my needs are, know what I need in a relationship. Don't, don't project things onto a partner before you know them. You know, when you date with dignity and self-respect, you a person has to earn your trust. It doesn't just come. And I, I think these are all just important principles. Mm-hmm. I love the way you talk about it. There's a uh, school of thought orientation, and it's got a funny name in, in the study of psycho psychotherapy. It's called, and you may have heard of it, it's called object relations. And mm. it sounds so cold. It's think it's originally from sort of the German translation many years ago, but it's exactly what you're talking about, that what your relationship, your relationships uh, as, as children um, sort of form a template that you take with you into your primary relationships as an adult. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that's what you're saying, that there's these sort of patterns that you believe to be true that you keep playing out. Um, and it sounds like, you know, what you're saying is you've got to be really aware of what those patterns are because that will uh, have a huge impact on who you're choosing and what kind of relationship you have. Correct. And I've never heard that term, but I would call it your downloaded family blueprint. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you, I have clients actually answer questions about their family of origin and and what the culture was because how we speak to each other, how our emotions were dealt with, whether family was put first or whether the parents, you know, made themselves first or diminished themselves altogether. And all of that impacts us. And we get to change that though. We really get to have an opportunity to heal Mm -hmm. and to do better. And I think that the other thing that's really advantageous at this stage in life is that men are not the same as they were when we were 20. The the men that are healthier are really looking for a relationship where they can actually be open and have an emotional connection, which I think was a lot harder when we were younger. So we get an opportunity to be with men. Women get to, get to women's hormones are changing, men's hormones are changing, and we're probably more equal at this stage in life than we ever have been. And that leads to juicy, delicious relationships. 
So you've got a very optimistic message <laughs> that we have, this is the perfect time for a do-over mm -hmm. in many ways, yes, but you I'm, have to do the work. Yes. So I think many people are reinventing their careers. They are, you know, I have, you have, you know, we, we're all doing new things because we can. And it's exciting. It's exciting to know that we can we can do whatever we want, especially if we stop listening to what society has told us about about aging, about women, about men. I mean, just do do you. <laughs> Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, that brings us to the theme of the show, which I'm really excited about, which is courage. And what you're describing sounds so powerful, yet it's no walk in the park to look <laughs> at your own patterns and say, yeah, you know, for example, I've said this to clients before, yes, he's a jerk. And you're letting him be a jerk. Yeah, right. um, so the idea of like, what part do you play sounds like an important piece of this puzzle, but that's a potentially pretty painful and, um, uh, you know, to go into what am I doing? That's not easy. Here's the issue. It may not be easy, but it's a solution to a problem the the alternative is you stay stuck and you think that your life is being controlled by everybody else when you know that you have specific steps you can take to make changes that are going to make your life better mm -hmm. what could be bad about that i mean <laughs> mm -hmm. i i you know it may feel painful in the beginning i just feel like so many people just think that this is the way it is I, it's in my dna i you know, my family has a history of divorce, so I'm going to be a failure at relationships. Or my mother was a martyr, so I'm a martyr too. And I come from a family of people pleasers, so that's what I do. Mm -hmm. But guess what? <laughs> you can change that. So if, yes, it, it does take work, but just imagine what life is like when you're not living your life in response to everybody else, but you actually get to make choices that create the life you want. You know, this is a very new concept for some people, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you may have to sell this one a little bit <laughs> because people, you know, we're kind of creatures of habit. And even though it feels bad, bad and comfortable, you know, kind of go hand in hand. I've noticed in my work and sometimes people can't even conceive of what it feels like to say, no, thank you. That's not for me. Mm. Yeah, you have to get sick and tired of being sick and tired. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I think that it definitely has to come from within. And I can tell you, my son is a great example of someone who had to learn to set boundaries. And this came because I learned to set boundaries. I used to want to make everybody happy. And it led to a bad marriage. It led to doing work that didn't fill me up. It led to me thinking that I had to do a lot of things rather than I chose to do a lot of things. And so when I got divorced and I started doing this inner work and I went to get life coach certification and read a million books on psychology and relationship health and all of that, I started to learn what I could do to change all that. And what I noticed is a lot of the things that I had experienced in my marriage, my kids were now experiencing with their father. and my son 
all of a sudden realized, you know, I need to, I, I don't like what's happening. And he spent a long time trying to convince his father that he should change. Mm. And all my kids did that. Dad, you know, it's not fair. You should change. And when they all realized dad isn't going to change, you have to make changes. You have to let dad know this is not okay. I'm going to leave now. Or this mm. isn't, I'm not going to visit you if this is going to happen. I won't be able to stay at your house. I mm -hmm. can see you for coffee, but not for dinner. These are all ways that we set boundaries. And the, you know, when the kids all learned how to do this, they were happier. They stopped wasting energy trying to convince somebody to change when he wasn't willing to change. Not because he's a bad person, but because it just, it's not in his brain to change like he doesn't even realize what he's, he's doing not asking for change to change yeah he's, he doesn't see it you know so. i recognize i recommend this book to people and you could probably get it on amazon for like 25 cents it's an <laughs> oldie but a goodie and i'm sure you've heard of it but it's called dance of anger mm -hmm. by harriet lerner and it is like the Bible of, it's just for women, and it's the Bible of how to do precisely what you're doing, which is, you know, say, this is what happens, and I've got to make the change, and what it's going to look like is coffee and not dinner. Or, you know, it's not about saying, I'm never talking to you again, or, you know, we're done, but how do you negotiate a relationship when you don't like what's happening, but and you need to figure out a way to protect yourself um, mm -hmm. and also, you know, ha have it go differently. Correct. And I, I want to add to that, and Dance of Anger is a great book. I want to just say that sometimes you do need to sever the ties with somebody who's really toxic to you. Yeah. So it's I not always about negotiation and setting boundaries. Sometimes it's just, I can't be in your life anymore. It's too expensive. Yeah. Your and that's soul. Exactly. And that takes courage. So the you know, the topic of courage, it takes courage to take a stand for what you believe in. It takes courage to speak up and set your boundaries. It takes courage to ask for what you want, especially if you fear that you're not going to get it. And all the times that you don't do those things, you know, you can live in regret, which is not a good place to be. And so, you know, take those courageous steps, you know, even when it's scary, especially when it's scary. So how did you, tell me about your courage and have you always been a courageous person or was there a time in your life where there was kind of before courage and after courage? <laughs> how, did, how does that look for you? Because I think many women listening are, are in agreement and it resonates, but it's scary. It's mm -hmm. really scary. So can you talk a little bit about what courage looks like to you, where you find it, how you uh, nurture it, all of that? Sure. So it's funny. I was thinking BC and AC. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. We could do a whole new uh, BC AC. Okay. So before courage, yes, there was definitely a before courage. I grew up in a home where there was a lot of chaos and dysfunction, and my parents were trying to do their best, but there was a lot of yelling and a, a very difficult marriage. And so 
I think inside, I always had this need to keep the peace. So I was definitely the peacekeeper. Um, but I also sought out healthy families. And I realized that just a few years ago that my best friends had healthy families. And so I'd spend a lot of time away from home. And that was a way to protect myself. But without the modeling of what healthy looked like, and certainly there were terribly weak boundaries and very bad communication. So I, I, I knew that it wasn't working for me, but I didn't know what did work yet. So I spent a lot of time just kind of fumbling in the dark and making really bad mistakes. And my TED talk and actually my Toastmaster speech, which I just um, did last night, is, uh, is a contest speech. It was based on my TED talk about being a Tootsie Pop. And the Tootsie Pop concept is that throughout my relationships, I, instead of learning the right lessons from breakups and heartache, I got tougher like a Tootsie Pop. So I just put guard after guard over my heart. Mm -hmm. And I was just trying to protect myself. So what you do when you protect yourself is you also keep love out. And the last time that I got my heart broken in my late 20s, I really gave up. I had opened myself up so much to vulnerability and I was rejected. And that was in my head, actually. It wasn't really a rejection, which I found out much later. This guy was seeing somebody else and got engaged like a month after I thought we were together. Um, we never, mm. it was a platonic relationship, but we spent all of our time together. It was this crazy thing. But in those days, I built fantasies because I didn't speak up. I didn't ask questions. And so in my head, this was my husband. <laughs> this, was, this was the guy I was going to marry. He was amazing. And um, one night he invited me over for a home-cooked meal. And I'm thinking, this is the night. It's going to happen. Finally, he's going to kiss me. And we had been together like a month or so by then. And, uh, and then I had a headache and he said, oh, would you like a massage in my bedroom, on my bed? I'm like, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm thinking, yeah, it's going to be like any minute now. He's going to make his move. And then he just like platonically pats me on the back and gets up from the bed. And I'm like, what the hell? This is confusing. <laughs> yeah. So I thought, oh, you know, because I'm so guarded, maybe he doesn't know that I like him. So I have to give him a sign. And I went and I gave him a really big hug and he recoiled. It was like, I felt like he was saying, you repulse me. I mean, that was all in my head. And he didn't walk me back to my apartment. We just stopped talking. Oh. And then I found out he was engaged and I, I was mortified. I, I really felt like, what what is going on here? I can't ever open my heart again. And so I dated with my head and not my heart. That was my conclusion. Just use your head. Don't, don't engage your heart at all. Mm. And that's how I met my husband. Um, he was crazy about me. I felt safe with him, but I didn't feel the same way he felt about me. But I felt like he would keep me safe. Mm. So I didn't understand relationships. I ended up in a pretty loveless, very critical, you know, a lot of criticism and arguments. And um, stayed 23 years. So... Courage, um, I wouldn't call that courageous. I was resilient. Um, I thrived in a very difficult situation um, in some ways, but I was basically in survival mode because I really thought 
this is as good as it gets for a long time. I really Sam, thought that. When you were in it, and it sounds pretty bleak, was there a little teeny voice saying no? Or, I mean, was there any indication or anything that was whispering in your ear saying, this isn't enough? Do you recall that? I'm just yes. curious what your experience is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I knew going down the aisle that it was, it was not enough. But my experience taught me that don't want, don't ask for too much because you won't get it. Mm-hmm. And so that was what I carried. And, and he was sweet and he was different and he was funny and he had an interesting career. And so there were other redeeming qualities. And I wanted to be cherished. I wanted to be loved. And that wasn't happening. I mean, it was a lot of kind of love bombing. But when it when it really came to the real important things in a marriage, it wasn't happening. There was no compromise. So what's love bombing? Tell me, no. <laughs> what does that mean? That's a term that's, I guess, fairly, fairly recent. Um, love bombing is when someone comes on really strong and okay. gives you like every lovely word about ah. how amazing you are and that you are the perfect person for them. And I believed it. Although there was this part of me, like you say, like, what's that voice in your head? There was a part of me that didn't believe it because it was too much too soon. So, you know, didn't trust it. And I told him, I don't, I don't think you see me. I I remember saying that. So the point is not to belabor that relationship, but I want to bring in another, another life lesson that happened early on in our marriage, which was that our first child was born with a genetic disease. And we started out as two people, my husband and I, who were going to raise our kids, Orthodox Jewish. We were gonna send our kids to Jewish day schools. I mean, we had this whole plan. And as soon as my son was born, my, my husband started to give up his practice of religion. And really isolated himself hate you know in really... response to the illness and, that, yes okay so that something like uh, uh, god why mm-hmm. why uh, okay why me why, why me, me? Yep. and so what i what i saw in our the way we dealt with crisis was he was the why me i'm a victim and it was all about him <laughs> i mean he was a loving father too but but it was all the first place to go was let's blame God. And mine was like, why not me? I mean, I, you know, my childhood taught me that you don't expect everything to be perfect. So what do you do? You just get into action. You find out how to help your child. You don't sit and go, oh, why me? So it didn't even occur to me. I mean, it wasn't like I was being heroic. It was like, you know, we're so lucky when a child is born healthy, and it's it's not to be taken for granted. So I think my expectations were very different, and my way of dealing with crisis was very different. And he became very passive, and I became I took over. I mean, I became an expert in my son's disease. It was a rare disease, and doctors had no idea what what it was. In fact, I was the one who pushed for a diagnosis because they misdiagnosed him at birth. Um, and I became a medical expert in his disease. So that that gave me courage. You know, when you deal mm-hmm. with extreme crisis, especially medical issues, 
and you realize, you know, this is a life or death thing and, and, it, and you're stepping up, it's like everything else pales in comparison and you feel like I can, I can slay any dragon at mm, this point. That's the exact term I, I had in my head that mm. that's a really big dragon though. It was a big dragon. I was certainly, um, it was certainly not easy. Um, luckily, my son Avi was was sweet, and he was an easy child in many ways. But he had seventeen surgeries in two years, mm -hmm. and um, he suddenly developed a brain tumor when he was just short of five years old, and he died within a couple of days. So it was it was not what we expected, but we also knew that this disease could have taken his life at any point. Mm -hmm. And again, how do you deal with death? How do you deal with death of a child? For me, I, I rationalized it to some degree. And I said, you know, he died before he knew he was different. He died when he was still happy with himself before, you know, he had to struggle. He couldn't walk well. He, he had some uh, mental retardation. I mean, he had a lot of struggles. Mm. And, oh, Sandy, um, my goodness. Yeah. So, you know, I, I took solace in the fact that he gave us five beautiful years. Um, he sang beautifully. He, he just, he had a, a beautiful smile. Uh, and, and I actually wrote an article with, um, for Red Book, I, or fam, one, of the, one of the big magazines, I don't remember. Um, somebody wanted to write it and um, she interviewed me for the article. It was probably a year after Avi died. I wanted to focus on the lessons learned. And I've given a speech on this because I think no matter what happens in our lives, we can take away something positive. I'm not saying everything is positive in life. Mm -hmm. I'm not a Pollyanna. I'm, I don't paint that picture. I think mm -hmm. we have to really mm -hmm. grieve for losses and feel all emotions. But if we focus only on the why me and the victim place, we don't grow and we don't and we stay stuck. And, and I don't think crisis is is meant for us to just wallow in it for the rest of our lives. I really don't. I think so you're we can build. saying it sounds like what you're saying is there's a choice point mm -hmm. where we could all agree nobody should um, have their child die. But you we're very clear that, okay, I, I'm going to grieve this, I'm going to feel it, and I'm also going to make a choice what I'm going to do with this experience. Correct. Yeah, I don't know how conscious it was, like I am choosing this, but I, mm -hmm. I know that I'm not comfortable being in a victim place. It, it makes me very uncomfortable to stay there too long. It feels stuck. It feels like I'm in quicksand. And, you know, one, one thing I did, 30 days after my son died was to go back to the hospital where he died and have a meeting with social workers, doctors and nurses to talk to them about how to deal with a dying child and their parents because they did a terrible job. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I want to educate and I want to do something positive with this, not to blame, but to say, hey, look, you've got to communicate better with parents. You can't dismiss us. You know, we want to know, we have to know. It was a lot of secrecy and, and I felt like they knew things and they weren't telling us. And mm -hmm. I didn't want that. You know, I wanted them to trust that we could handle whatever it was instead of talking behind our backs. So they agreed to meet with me. And, you know, I've also 
encouraged other parents of children with Fanconi anemia, which is what he had, to go on and have other children because I had three healthy children after after Avi, and it took courage each time to get pregnant because mm. I had a one in four chance each time. But to me, I didn't, again, look at the alternative, just have one child, have that child die, and that's it. I couldn't live with that choice. Hello, Zestful Agers. A short intermission to thank you for the incredible amount of downloads. I love creating this podcast, and it's so satisfying to know that you are enjoying it too. Creating and hosting Zestful Aging has been a blast, but it does require a lot of time and resources to deliver a high-quality interview to you every week. So I've signed up with Patreon, which is kind of like Kickstarter, but for ongoing artistic projects. Unlike Kickstarter, the donations are recurrent and the amount is usually smaller. When you become a patron of Zestful Aging, you will receive special benefits like behind the scenes info, a place to communicate with other listeners as well as other patron-only bonuses. These funds will be used to make equipment upgrades, particularly for mobile interviewing, and to travel to interview guests like to New York City to interview participants in the Diversity Fashion Show. I also need to hire a professional editor. So please go to patreon.com forward slash zestful aging and make a small but vital donation. Thank you for contributing to the ongoing success of zestful aging. And I can't wait to bring you more juicy, inspiring interviews. Now back to the show. You know, I'm thinking about um, what you said earlier on, how important it was that you had a friend and you adopted families, Mm -hmm. that you actually sought out healthy places. And in some of the literature on resilience, that's exactly what has to happen, that you realize something's wrong here and I got to find, (laughs) I got to find something better. You may not be articulating it clearly, but for whatever reason you were able to, um, find a safer, more positive, more loving, um, place. And that is one of the pillars of resilience. Mm. So, um, very, very glad you were were able to do that. I mean, you have really been through uh, hell and back. <laughs> yeah, it's a badge of courage. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's um, you know, I don't, I don't even talk about it much. You know, my past because it is in the past. And there was a point where my youngest daughter would would when she was probably three years old. She never met Avi because she was not born yet. And she would just introduce herself to people, strangers, and say, hi, my name is Sarah, and my brother Avi died. 
bye. Mm. Oh. <laughs> and, and she was trying to make sense of it, but I was left holding this hobby card, you know, mm. and now it's like, I don't really want to talk to a total stranger about my dead son, yeah. but I have to figure out a way to deal with this. Uh, but it's, it's been interesting to see how each of my children has dealt with it. And I've also, another thing that I've learned, and this is also from a negative experience, is how to how to deal with your other children when you have a sick child and um, mm -hmm. I had a cousin who had a sick child and that child became deified like put on a pedestal and the other kids were ignored and I remember feeling that when I was young I'd come and visit and it was like the goddess is here and it made me so uncomfortable and what happened later in life is the two sisters who survived don't talk to each other. It's no surprise. Mm -hmm. You know, there was so much um, neglect and jealousy. And, uh, and I have a client now who's, who's got something similar where her brother was sick and she was ignored. And I had another client whose mother was sick and she was told she had to be the good girl. And so like, you have mm -hmm. to be super aware of the impact that it has when you're giving so much attention to one person in the family that everybody else has to tiptoe around it and suppress who they are in order to not make waves. And by the way, what I have found and isn't, you know, is sort of a known fact in psychotherapy, that is a recipe for an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Because then, you know, especially if you're a female, because then the only way to get attention or the only way to speak up is to use your body as a billboard to say things are not well and mm. I am very unhappy and angry about this. Wow. So, yeah. you know, you talk, Sandy, about being a woman of value. Can you, can you define that? What is a woman of value? So to me, a woman of value is a woman who has, who knows herself, who loves herself, who has a clear sense of her self-worth. Um, she has dignity. She takes responsibility for her words, her actions, her thoughts. She doesn't blame others for her circumstances. Some of what we talked about today. She sets clear boundaries. She communicates effectively. She takes care of her core needs, like she eats on time. She sleeps enough, so she's not hangry and sleepy and, uh, <laughs> and bitchy. And um, you know, when you're around somebody who is complete within themselves in that way, like really takes care of themselves. I wouldn't say complete is a is a bit extreme, but you know, where we are not complete within ourselves, I believe that we really do need to be in partnership with other people. But it's, it's also that awareness that you need to ask for help, you need to learn to receive. And a woman who has those qualities, there's a certain ease and a glow about her and that she, you know, she, she sees the world through, through a positive lens. She, you know, is able to work through and process her stuff and not project it on others. She believes in herself. Yes. <laughs> and and there's something I don't I don't think you use this word, but there's a self-respecting quality perhaps mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in that, you know, no, I need to eat. I'm not going to go 10 hours because I'm too busy helping others. That's not going to uh, be a good result for me. Correct. Yes. Yeah. 
self-respect yeah. is a good that's one. A, that's a beautiful uh, description. Mm, thank you. Well, it's something I had to learn because I did not value myself a lot in my life enough to set those boundaries and to set clear lines in the sand about a lot of things. Um, and I didn't take care of my core needs. So I had, I definitely had to learn it. And it, a lot of it happened after my divorce. Do you think that there's a process of sort of baby steps where you try to stand up or you try to speak clearly a little bit, take some deep breaths, see that the sky doesn't fall in? And it, <laughs> you know, I mean, is that the process that you've seen little by little? Or is it like, I am done with this old life and it's a new world tomorrow, I'm going to be clear, I'm going to say what I can and cannot do. How does it look in real life? It looks like a big fat mess. <laughs> <laughs> Here's I what I see. That. I love your, your uh, realistic description. Yeah, we don't it's go not to graceful. sleep. Right? We go to sleep one day. We're we're like totally not taking care of ourselves, and the next day we just speak clearly and beautifully yes, and set yes, all the boundaries. Yes, our skin and, is glowing. Yes, exactly. I and want that program. Do you have that program? I'm working on it. I'm working, okay. on it. and I'm going to make a little magic pill that goes with it. Uh, we have to have the awareness first that again we're sick and tired of it. We we don't want we don't like what's happening. We now notice okay there's a part that I play in this. So like we said before, you've got the awareness. Now you want to speak up. You start, but you really need to get clear. What are my core needs? Like my my clients fill out an operating manual. This is where they they write down all of the ways that they operate best sexually, um, you know, in, in the right environment, um, the way they eat, the way they sleep. What do you need? Are you an introvert? Are you an extrovert? If you write those things down and really get clarity around them, then you can say, you know what, I'm gluten free. I can't eat at that restaurant with you, but I would love to, um, but I would love to see you. Can we talk about finding a restaurant that we both can eat at? A lot of people with, with different ways of eating are embarrassed to say, I'm on the whole 30 plan, or, uh, you know, they feel like they're being too um, needy, you know. And I think we have to make that distinction between neediness and having needs. The needs that we have have to be honored. And neediness comes from not honoring your needs, actually. It's you start getting whiny because your needs aren't met and you don't know how to meet them. And especially if you expect other people to meet them for you when you're not meeting them yourself. Mm -hmm. So what I do first with women is help them to really get clear what are those needs. Get that operating manual filled out. The next step is to start asserting yourself. And a lot of times when women have suppressed their voice for a long time, they can be kind of angry when they speak up. And it can come across as militant and it's not boundaries. It's a bunch of walls and demands and, um, but that's, you know, it's, it's okay. It's like, be okay with the fact that you're now using your voice. It just might be abrasive and you might need somebody to say, Hey, I, I appreciate what you're saying. Just, can you say it a little differently? <laughs> I would respond a little better if you weren't so pissy. 
And um, so it's, it's massaging it. I mean, the beauty of working with a coach or a therapist is that they get to be the mirror for you and help you to tweak. And I do that a lot. Like somebody will say, you know, I spoke up. I told my date that, um, you know, that that wasn't okay. And so we'll talk about what's his response and what do you think you can do a little differently next time to be a little less snarky? You know, it was it the tone of your voice you know, maybe tweak those couple of words and that'll make a big difference in how somebody hears you. Mm -hmm. So just having someone to reflect it back helps. Mm -hmm. But what I find is like people really have trouble even identifying feelings, identifying needs. It's really hard. We are not trained to do that. And often when I say to a woman, what were you, what are you feeling? She'll say something like, I've felt that he was hurting my feelings. You know, I felt that he was manipulating me. And that's not a feeling. So it's, were you angry? You know, were you, were you frustrated? That's a feeling. So when you identify the feeling and then you say, okay, I was frustrated because I had a need that was not met at the time. Okay, what was that need? Oh, now I can speak from that place instead of you're a bad person. You know, mm -hmm. you're just a nasty son of a bitch. So it's it, I think this is such cr crucial work that we all can benefit from. And that gives us the ability to get out of our heads and out of judgment, which helps us to speak up in a much more connected, kind, compassionate way. Mm -hmm. You know, the other piece of that that I think is so important and is, is getting a lot of airplay lately is, is self-compassion. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you describe women saying, okay, I'm going to change my pattern. I'm going to be more assertive, more clear, more attuned to what I need in the relationship. And then, of course, you know, there's always backsliding. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, women will come to me and say, oh, gosh, I did it again. You know, I gave too much or I didn't uh, tell somebody I couldn't do that. It was too, you know, uh, there's there's too much of me going out, not enough coming in. And I think it's important also to have this piece of, but there's a reason. I'm trying to solve the problem of, you know, uh, bringing love into my life or having people like me or whatever. It's, there's a reason it's just gone kind of askew, mm -hmm. you know? So I, I think that that's an important part of what you're saying. The analysis of what do I want to do differently? Cause it's not working. It's not healthy. It's not helpful, but also the piece of, and of course I'm doing this. You know, of course, I would try to people please because I'm doing the best I can with the tools I still have. They're mm -hmm. not they need to be polished up and and revised. Um, yes. Does that make sense? In yes. Your, in your uh, description of what you do, what the process is. Yeah, definitely. It's be kind to yourself, be kind to yourself and others. You know, it's it's mm -hmm. really if you are compassionate with yourself and just say, whoops, you know, <laughs> made a mistake. It makes sense because I've been doing this for 50 years. So mm -hmm. of course, I'm going to keep making mistakes, but at least I'm trying. And I think that um, I always point women to to self-compassion because it's so easy for us to be in self beat up. Mm -hmm. You know, those negative voices are so, so ingrained in us. And I think, you know, we have a real issue with self-worth and you know, I, I think that that's why I do this work. It's it's we need to really believe in ourselves and take a stand for who we are. 
Can I shift gears and just bring in the whole question of aging and how it's been for you? I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is things keep getting better as you learn and grow, but I'm just wondering as a woman, and we know, you know, with the beliefs about older women um, in our society, that we're dealing with a very ageist society. Have you had to do any of your own work about being middle-aged and over and what that means in terms of your value as a desirable partner? Hmm. You know, when I first started dating after my divorce, I was probably 54. And I thought I was really old and (laughs) wrinkly and no man was going to want me. And I had nursed babies and you know my body was just not what it was in my 20s hello well whose is and I I went in with the belief that I had to be chosen and I think that as my sense of self changed I realized that I was the chooser that I look pretty damn good for my age (laughs) and it actually took a man or two to say to me you're beautiful that made me realize that I was so self-critical. I hadn't been told I was beautiful by my husband. I don't think I really was ever told that. So I didn't have that belief. And I had to really feel into it. And I think that, you know, we, again, we get in our own way. So I'm 62 tomorrow. (laughs) And, uh, and I, I really feel I like myself more. I am so much kinder to myself and I have owned my value. Of course, I have self-doubt sometimes, you know, I can slip back into, you know, just self-criticism. But for the most part, I feel good about myself. I feel like when you take a step back from the mirror, instead of putting that magnifying mirror up, I, one of the advantages of aging is our eyesight changes. And <laughs> it's a blessing. It is a blessing. I mean, when I look at my 23-year-old daughter, who's gorgeous, and I, I see how she'll criticize Cellulite or you know mm-hmm. something like that. It's like uh, you are absolutely stunning. Um, but I get it. I was like that too. And you know, the pimple, the everybody's looking at me. And my son said to me recently, because he, he was getting a little bit of hair loss and he was freaking out about it. He's like, he goes, nobody cares. Everybody's worried about their own hair loss. Yeah, everybody's worried about true. their own stuff. So when we you wish kind of... they cared about us as much as we <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so when you just kind of that's piece of self compassion too. It's just like Overall, things are functioning. I'm not taking any medication. I don't have any major illness. You know, I'm lucky to be alive. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's all attitude and and the way our mindset is around aging. I think that really I've lost friends. I, Mm -hmm. I really do consider myself to be lucky to be alive and healthy and energetic. And my brain works still. So Mm-hmm. pretty happy about that. I, I don't feel that I'm being targeted in an ageist way. Um, you know, started a new business in my 50s. I'm about to launch my new Woman of Value website and a whole new area of business. I, I don't feel limitations because of my age at all. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful to hear. 
You have a really inspiring attitude, Sandy. It's oh. it's lovely to hear that. Okay. Um, is there any any last advice for our listeners uh, who I think are really going to resonate with this idea of how can I be more courageous? You know, I'm in this phase now where, you know, there's more life behind me than there is in front of me. And I've got precious time and I don't know what to do next. You know, do you have any last words of advice about how they can jump into a life that feels fulfilling, satisfying, passionate, purposeful, (laughs) all that good stuff? There is a lot that they can do. And I would say do something scary every day. Um, Mm. Something out of your comfort zone. The comfort zone just keeps you safe and stuck. And that's, I married the comfort zone. (laughs) I, Mm. you know, it just doesn't get us to that next level. And it's, you know, do something a little scary. It doesn't have to be like bungee jumping or jumping out of a plane. It can be speaking on a stage. I I joined Toastmasters so that I could get over my fear of speaking. I I got a TED talk when I couldn't speak on a stage. I mean, I, you know, so I, I I leap and then look and, and then I got support. So there are lots of people who can support you to, to take uncomfortable steps. So if you're whatever you're avoiding, that would enhance your life. So whether it's starting a business, um, going on a date, uh, speaking on a stage, whatever scares the hell out of you, but you know that the other side of it would be amazing and give you something delicious, then try it, do it in a baby step. I mean, when I went to Toastmasters the first time, I was scared to walk in the door. I, I volunteered to, or I was, I was voluntold to, <laughs> to get up and do an extemporaneous speech. And I was shaking. I mean, my brain was just like completely disassociated from my body. Mm-hmm. And now I'm competing in contests and winning. And, and it's because I was persistent and consistent. And so I think you got to just take that one step. So try, try something, you know, mm. and, and reach out for support. You don't have to do it alone. There's this little, uh, uh, tr- it's not really a trick, but it's a little technique that uh, it has been around forever in the psychotherapy world. And that is when, when you know, I work primarily with women, but when women are in this position of, I want to be more courageous, but I, I don't even know what that looks like. We have this little job for them is to buy a pair of shoes that they know they're not going to keep and then go return them. And that sounds like maybe small potatoes, but Mm. for some women, they've just never considered the possibility that they could do that. And they maybe ask questions like, was there anything wrong with these shoes? No, Mm. I just don't like them. And, you know, it's a, it's a, the first baby step for some people to do who have just not been living in the world of, I, I have power and control over my life and I can make choices that are in my best interest. Mm, I love that. Yeah. Great exercise. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I'd like to title your podcast interview, if it's okay with you, do what scares the hell out of you. (laughs) Does that fit? Sure. (laughs) Okay. 
I really appreciate your sharing, you know, your personal stories of courage and resilience. It's not, I, I, I recognize that that's not something you do every day. Mm. And I really think our, our listeners are going to appreciate hearing sort of the nitty gritty of, you know, what this looks like and how you can come out the other side. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I, I actually am really love this interview and it's a great topic. Yeah. Um, I love the whole idea of courage. It's something that I don't think it's talked about that much in, in my circles anyway. Mm. So I'm, I'm thinking of starting a new podcast called Call to Courage. Ooh, did you just think of that? <laughs> no, I thought of oh. it with my business coach because one, one day we were coaching and, and I said, you know, every time I'm afraid of something, I just think of my call to courage and it, mm. it helps me to step into my courage. And, and she goes, call to courage. That's a podcast. That's a book. That's yeah. <laughs> and so I just said, okay, I think that's my next oh, step. That sounds, that sounds really lovely. Mm. Um, Sandy, where can people reach you? I'll put this in the program notes, but uh, could you let them know uh, your website or where you want them to go to learn more about you and your and your phenomenal accomplishments? Mm, thank you. Well, they can find me at lastfirstdate.com. Mm -hmm. And when they're there, they can connect with me on YouTube, on Instagram, on Facebook. I do have a Facebook group if uh, we have any over 40 single ladies. It's okay. called Your Last First Date okay. on Facebook, and we have about 2,300 members. It's, uh, it's a very heavily monitored group, so the conversations do not go off the rails into man bashing and negativity. I very carefully monitor that. And I uh, would love to have new people join me. So they would go on Facebook and then in the search bar, they would write your last first date group. Uh, they could do group or just write your last first date. I think it'll okay. come up. And they'll have to be invited or is that an open group? It's not open, but um, they can apply. And apply I will, for, yep. I'll review. They have to answer three questions. Um, yeah, and if anybody is looking for some private coaching, um, you can. There's a there's an application on my website on the coaching mm -hmm. for, um, on the coaching page. Um, we can have a, a no obligation conversation for a half hour to talk about stepping into your courage mm -hmm. and becoming a woman of value. I love that, Sandy. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. Um, you're you're something else. Oh, <laughs> you are you. A, you are a woman of power and inspiration, and I'm I'm really grateful that you shared your your advice and your stories with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. I love to hear from my listeners, so send me an email at nicolechristina.com and tell me what you'd like to hear more about. I would also greatly appreciate if you could hop on iTunes and rate the show. Ratings help other people find the podcast so I can share all these good juicy interviews with others. I would also invite you to become a patron of the Zestful Aging podcast. Hop on over to patreon.com forward slash zestful aging, and consider making a small donation. 
you will be eligible for insider-only goodies and behind-the-scenes information, and it'll help you feel good knowing that you're contributing to the Zestful Aging podcast. I'll look forward to sharing more juicy interviews next week on Zestful Aging.